Hello, and welcome to this FRDH, First Rough Draft of History podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. I have not boundless, but a huge, huge admiration for the man. He's certainly, I think, the most admirable public figure of, of my adult lifetime. That's Martin Walker, remembering Mikhail Sergeyevich Gorbachev. Martin Walker got to know Gorbachev and his formidable wife, Raisa, during the 1980s, when he was the Guardian newspaper's Moscow correspondent. Martin got to write history's first rough draft of the last leader of the Soviet Union from two sides, because after his Moscow assignment was over, the Guardian sent him to Washington to cover the incoming administration of the first President Bush, and he was there when the Cold War and the Soviet Union suddenly came to an end. So when Gorbachev died at the age of 91, I contacted Martin Walker to put Gorbachev's achievements and failures in their historical context. I interviewed him down a line from his home in Perigord in France, where he is enjoying a third act, writing a series of detective novels about Bruno Courage, the local chief of police in that pleasant but apparently crime-ridden corner of the country. I began by asking Walker what his first thoughts were when he heard news of Gorbachev's death. In a political sense, he died some time ago. And the end of his life, although he did a fair amount of globe-tropping and making some money at congresses and so on and international, con con international conventions, he didn't really have a much of a political persona since that time when he tried and failed in 97 to uh, stand for uh, for office in the democratized Russia. And he's been very discreet in his remarks about Putin. Um, he hasn't said a word about Ukraine, uh, not that we know about. He wasn't even bitter about Boris Yeltsin, who refused to raise his, uh, his pension, even when it had declined through inflation to be worth about one ruble a week or something. He let his successors get on with their job. And I think the light of his first went out of his life when, when Raisa died. I mean, she was hugely, hugely important to him. The remarkable thing about Gorbachev is that he he's the longest lived of all of the leaders of the Soviet Union. He is one who remains much more highly regarded in the outside world than he is in Russia. But there are, there are signs that this has been changing. Navalny, for example, if anybody is the leader of the Russian opposition now, it's, it's Navalny. He is uh, a known admirer of what Gorbachev tried to do. And he said that although Gorbachev was taking on Mission Impossible in trying to reform the economic system of the Soviet Union, he found its soft underbelly in going for glasnost and freedom of speech, freedom of the press, the ending of the great shroud of Stalinist silence that still hung over so much. When Gorbachev came to power, nobody knew, for example, that two of his grandfathers had been sent to prison camps, to labor camps. All that we knew was that one of his grandfathers at a time had been chairman of his local collective farm, and that his father had been a, a war veteran. In other words, a very sort of conventional background for a Soviet leader. But in fact, there was that dissidence in the background, which I think was important. Equally, I think Gorbachev was also remarkable in the way in which he combined being a country boy 
from Stavropol, from the Krasnoyarsk region, uh, where he began in farming as a tractor driver and a tractor mechanic. He was also a Muscovite by adoption in that he was one of the few rural kids from a collective farm who got to Moscow State University and indeed to the law faculty there. And that, I think, was a sort of a double barrel credential as far as the Soviet Union was concerned. And he was also exposed from far more than most Russians to un unorthodox opinions. Raisa, his wife, was, was part of it. I mean, she was part of an unspoken I'm, I'm going to say, Martin, I'm, go I'm going to stop you there for a second, because you were there for The Guardian in the mid-80s. You yeah. arrived in the Soviet Union, and he was not yet the Secretary General of the party. What was it like just before he took over? Well, I got there. I first went in 83. I moved there with my family in 84. And Moscow was a grim place in many ways. I mean, the 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 shops would call themselves Miasa for meat, and that's all it was. My wife used to reckon that their system of, um, of butchery in uh, of preparing their meat was that they'd get the cow to swallow a hand grenade, and then the resulting bits would then go on sale. We used to buy in, in the Riba shop, fish shop, we would buy chunks of ice and you never knew quite what you would get. You might get three heads and two tails of fish and nothing of the inside of it. It depended where the, where the electric saw had gone down in these huge blocks of ice into which the fish were frozen when they were caught up in the uh, up near Murmansk. So yes, it was, it was a joke in a way like that. And there was this thriving black market. I remember the first time going home uh, with a Russian friend from um, a party that went on quite late. It must have been about two in the morning. And uh, he said, have you got any cigarettes with you? And I said, yes. I, and I put out a packet in Marlborough. And he said, just hold it up in the middle of the road, whatever car comes along. And I held it up. And it was a police car. And they drove us home for that pack of cigarettes. And when Gorbachev came in, it didn't seem initially uh, at least by his public statements, to be that dramatic. But slowly, things really began to change. And by, I think one of the big factors in it was Chernobyl. And that gave Gorbachev a great deal of leverage to move against some of the old dinosaurs in the party. Just as that moment when the young, uh, the young German flew his private plane to land in Red Square in Moscow, despite the so-called fabled air defense system of the Red Air Force. And that allowed Gorbachev to get rid of an awful lot of the dead wood in the military as well. So all of these things were, in some ways, the cards worked well for him. Now, those of us who'd been, who were British correspondents had been very struck before Gorbachev became known at all in the outside world at the impact he had had on a visit to Britain when he was just a member of the Politburo. And he went and met Margaret Thatcher and she came out saying, this is a man we can do business with. And this was in 1980-84. Thatcher was riding high after the Falklands victory, her relationship with the American president, Ronald Reagan. And for her to give this seal of capitalist approval to the incoming Gorbachev was quite important. And from that moment, the old evil empire rhetoric, which had marked Reagan's first term, began to shift. 
And I'll never forget being there in Red Square four years later when Reagan himself is walking through Red Square, shaking hands with people in the crowd and being greeted very warmly. So I, you know, it's, it's interesting that you bring up that image because one of the things you and I are of an age, but not everybody who listens to this podcast is as well struck in years. Most of them are. But anyway, you know, I, I remember thinking that it was absolutely extraordinary, almost impossible to imagine a man whose entire political career had been built out of this sea change because he started out as a liberal, Ronald Reagan, the union president, albeit the union being the Screen Actors Guild. Mm -hmm. And there they are. You must have felt a little pinch me as well. That this this is really quite there several very thing. There were several moments of pinch me. One moment of pinch me was in Geneva, the first meeting of Reagan and Gorbachev, their first summit. And I was in the pool that was allowed into the building for their formal sort of handshakes. And very surprised to hear peals of laughter coming from inside that room, and equally uh, amazed at the very positive feedback that we were getting from the various spokesmen from the White House and from the Kremlin. Second time was sitting outside the conference room. There was always one Western journalist and one and a guy from Pravda. And uh, Margaret Thatcher was in there talking to, to Sergei, Mikhail Sergeyevich, peals of laughter coming out of the room again. I mean, what was clear was that Gorbachev, who was known for his charm, had a way of forging personal relationships with people. And I think this was important. His personal relationships with people, even ones who were hard to get on with, like uh, Helmut Kohl and so on, were, were, were really pretty good. He, and I think the reason for that was that Gorbachev knew the West. He, he'd always been exposed to unusual ideas. When he was at Moscow University, his roommate was a Czech, Zdenek Mlinar. And Zdenek and he were stayed in stayed friends. They visited each other after graduating and so on. And he was one of the inside men of the Prague Spring Revolution in 68 and was then, you know, shifted out of office. And but Gorbachev went to see him after this and to visit him in Prague. And uh, obviously they stayed friends. And this idea of socialism with the human face was a line that Gorbachev himself later used on a, one of his Far East tours. The other thing that I think was remarkable was how much he traveled. Um, once he became first secretary in, um, and that would have been in what, in I think about 70, in about 74, first secretary of the party in his region, he was able to travel and he visited, there's a wonderful photograph of him and, of him and Reiser, like a pair of tourists in the streets of Nice in southern France. They spent two motoring holidays driving around Italy, nominally as guests of the Italian Communist Party, fraternal relations and so on. But Gorbachev had more exposure to life in the West than anybody, any leader since Lenin. And that, I think, was important to him. And just as much, and an awful lot of that, I think, was, was Reiser, who loved to travel and who kept pushing him to make it much easier for Soviet citizens to travel as well. So, yeah, a, a lot of the stars came together at a certain point. The fact that Thatcher was a pragmatist, the fact that Reagan was prepared to take Thatcher's advice, that Gorbachev was the right kind of guy, and that 
we'd all had a nasty shock in 1983 when, do you remember when the Korean airliner was shot down? Yes, and, I do. And the US had invaded uh, Grenada and the evil empire rhetoric was all the rage. Well, I later heard from Bud McFarlane, who was, the, who was Reagan's national security advisor at the time, that there was this standard NATO exercise called Able Archer, which was to re send from the USA reinforcements by air in the event of a Soviet land attack. And they this time they wanted to do the entire exercise all the way up to Reagan leaving the White House and going into NECAP, which is the flying command post, and making sure that all of that process would work as well. However, at this time, Oleg Gordievsky, who was the head of the KGB office in London, and who was in fact a Western spy working for British intelligence, reported to the Brits that he just had a Mlinar, a flash order from Moscow, saying that they thought war was imminent and he should burn all of the secret papers in the KGB office at the embassy. At the same time, Bud McFarlane got a call from, uh, from German intelligence saying that they could confirm that the Soviet Union had got its nuclear armed bombers on standby, engines running at the end of the runways. And at this point, Bug McFarlane told me on the record, he said, at that point, I cancelled the rest of the exercise and got Reagan, instead of going up into the command post, I put him out on the White House balcony and on the White House lawn to give a press conference so they could know we were not going to be going that far. And that, I mean, it, it never made the kind of public drama that the Cuban Missile Crisis was. But people in the know have told me that they thought it was just as grave and perhaps closer. So I, I, I think we, the people like Gorbachev and Reagan at the time that they met in Geneva in 85 knew how high the stakes were and knew just what an opportunity there was. But Gorbachev was a man with the, with the, with the guts to outface the old guard on the Politburo and force the changes through. Now, a little break for a commercial. If you're enjoying this conversation with Martin Walker, please visit the FRDH website, www.goldfarbpod.com, and make a donation. It's not difficult. A one-time gift or a small monthly contribution genuinely helps me keep the podcast going. That's it. Commercial over. Now back to the conversation. He was generational change. Was there a real change going on yes. within, at the top of the Soviet system, and not just the political top? I just wonder, was the society ready? I don't want to sound like a Marxist. The society was ready for the change, and the man was simply going with, with the, the, the flow of, the, um, of where the society was at, or did he create the change? That's my question. I, I think there was, a, there was a movement coming, and he seized the opportunity that it gave. It's important to remember that Gorbachev was a of a generation that had lived through two false dawns, two thaws. There was a thaw immediately after Stalin's death in 54-55, with new plays being put on in the theatre, and then another even bigger thaw in 61 under Khrushchev. And that 61 coup was which we saw the publication of Solzhenitsyn's One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich which was about life in the Gulag. The idea of this was being published in Novi Mir, the most, the, 
uh, you know, the, the most forthright and best popular of literary magazines was dynamite. And then it closed down again into this long sleep of the Brezhnev years, which was whose theme was, let's nobody rock the boat. Let's keep everything as it is. I know that I know from, from having met her that uh, Raisa was a woman who had thrilled to the this idea of a, of a new dawn. Because Russia is a place that takes its poets and its writers extremely seriously. And I mean, the first person who told me that he thought that Gorbachev would be bringing about some kind of revolution and that Reiser would be pushing him all the time was Yevtushenko, the, the poet. But I'd, I had spent some time writing about rock music. And so one of the first things I did when I got to Soviet Union was to find the only, the nearest thing they had to a rock music critic, a man called Artyom Troitsky, who later became the editor of Playboy in, in, in Russia. And through Artyom, I got to go to some of these underground concerts, uh, underground rock concerts, and who were there, but sons and daughters of members of the Central Committee and the Politburo. And from them, it was quite clear that th there's an entire younger generation just pregnant with change, aching for it to happen, and that they were taking Gorbachev seriously was, was, was interesting. And then on the anniversary of, uh, of John Lennon's death, the fifth anniversary, I went up with a boombox up to Moscow State University. And it was winter, so we were standing on the big, by the big sort of uh, pedestal that looks down from the Lenin Hills onto Moscow. And I was just playing cassette after cassette of John Lennon and Beatles. And there must have been 200 of us gathered there, all of us singing along. And nobody came to break up that demonstration. You know, it's interesting, <laughs> no. around this time, uh, I'm, I made three trips to the Soviet Union, because in those days yeah. I was doing arts reporting. And in fact, I, I met up with a guy that you had written about in The Guardian. Get his first name, but his surname was Belyukovich. And he ran a theater yeah. out out past Moscow State University, yeah. the theater at the Southwestern District. And, right. and, and he'd done, he'd staged a wonderful Hamlet that I'd seen. Yeah. Exactly. And, and they yeah. brought it, he brought the company to Edinburgh. And it was such a big deal. It was like 87 yeah. or 88. Russian fringe theater company yeah. in the West. And the Iron Curtain was coming down. And that was the way it came down. And it came down because, as you tell it, Gorbachev, whatever fears. And that our was. Soviet, our Soviet citizen is a, is a thoughtful and well educated person, he said. You know? And then when did you leave? Were you there for the collapse or had you already moved on to? No, I went, I, I moved to the States. I went to the States in the end of, uh, end of 88, but I was back in the summer of 89 and again in the summer of 1990, partly because I had friends and partly because I was d doing occasional stories and traveling there with, with the U.S. Did, officials. Did you ever get to meet, did you ever get to meet with him in this period? Oh, yes. Yes, I met with him several times. I mean, the best time was during the Malta summit. Remember George Bush had a Malta summit and they were stuck on each other's ships. Gorbachev upon a Soviet holiday cruise ship and Bush upon a US naval vessel. The storm had blown up in Malta Harbor. They couldn't get from one boat to the other. I was standing uh, at the coffee bar having a, having a coffee with Edward Shevardnadze, who was the foreign minister of my new quite well. And because there was no chance of meeting Bush, 
Gorbachev strides up and joins us. Now, I'd met him in various formal occasions at the Kremlin and so on beforehand. This is the first time I actually you know, chatted to him like a human being. And he, I remember him saying, you know, well, it, it just says an awful lot about the feebleness of myself and President Bush, supposedly the most powerful men in the world, is that we cannot actually get together because of a storm. And um, I, he, yeah. he was aware at that time of the storm that was about to overwhelm not just him, but the entire Soviet system. I think he was constantly aware of the power of opposition from two sides. He felt he was the man in the middle being buffeted by the old hardliners who didn't want change, and at the same time being buffeted by the new and increasingly self-confident liberal movement that wanted more change more quickly. And I think it was only in 89 that Gorbachev thought he had to take the gamble of going for the famous Article 6. Article 6 was to break down the political monopoly of the Communist Party. And that was, for a lot of the old communists, that was complete heresy. He knew how, he knew what a narrow tightrope he was walking, but he also knew that the best way to buttress his own position was to keep on bringing what he could present as superpower diplomatic successes, ending the Cold War, calming down the, uh, the whole tensions that had been so high so recently. And that, for Gorbachev, I think that was always his trump card in internal matters as well as in international ones. It was amazing how slow the Americans, many Americans were to take this on board. When my book about Gorbachev came out in the US, it had come out first in Britain, the Wall Street Journal wrote a, a very nice uh, long review on the editorial page in which they said, this book is written by a European liberal who does not understand that glasnost is the Russian word for a shortage of barbed wire. <laughs> and a year later, when Gorbachev was in Washington, and every the whole American media was having what the Washington Post called a gorbasm over him, I wrote a letter to the editor of the Wall Street Journal suggesting he might like to revisit this particularly waspish review. Having set in motion, redirected these forces, allowing Eastern Europe to begin to break away, mm -hmm. did, he, did he ever feel overwhelmed and think, I, no, this has probably been a mistake? Or was he all right with, you know, there goes Germany. It doesn't matter. We'll keep the Soviet Union. We don't need this Warsaw Pact in, where, where we impose on these other nations. Did he think it got away from him a bit? I think it wasn't Eastern Europe where he began to feel it was getting away from him. It was, first of all, in Tbilisi, when demonstrators were beaten up by local KGB, KGB troops. And then even more so in the Baltic states in Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia, where they were openly calling for self-government autonomy, and indeed some of them were calling for departure from the Soviet Union. And uh, there was one incident after the big radio TV station had been attacked, when the local authorities went in very hard and kind of a counter blow. And Gorbachev went to went to the Baltic states after that to try and calm things down. 
but it was pretty clear then that it was getting away from him. And uh, it, it's, a, it's, a tra it's a strange thing that nobody's ever managed to really to achieve to, to hold the reins of a revolution and then not to have to bring in a kind of a control to keep it going. Lenin came in with the most utopian of hopes and finished up. The first thing he had to do was to set in, set in motion the checker, the, uh, the, the secret police, uh, which became sort of the hallmark of the Soviet system from then on. Revolutions eat their young. It happened in the French Revolution. You know, it happened in the German Revolution of 1848 and so on. So I, I think he knew what the stakes were, but he just felt driven to do it by the logic of what he was trying to do. He started off trying to, having the slogan of Usprobleña, which is um, acceleration. Then he went into perestroika, restructuring. And then I, I couldn't believe my ears when I was watching a Soviet TV report of a tour he was making in Vladivostok. And he said, what you have to understand is that perestroika really is revolution. We've got to really change this place. And that was in 87. So the sense of things moving was constantly there. I mean, I, I have not boundless, but a huge, huge admiration for the man. He's certainly, I think, the most admirable public figure of, of my adult lifetime. But then it all falls apart on him. But then you're in Washington. Do you think that, Washington, that, that the American government, this is George Bush, first George Bush at that point, actually understood the stakes and what the new responsibilities for America would be. Because one of the things about the world after Gorbachev lost power is how ill-prepared, it seems, everyone was for there is no Cold War. World War II, people were sort of prepared, you know, up to a point. Reconstruction had, had, was already being planned. Post-war architecture was already laid out for security, for, the econ for global economy. Mm -hmm. And yet the CIA missed that, this, that the Soviet Union was about to disintegrate. Presumably Mikhail Gorbachev wasn't in, didn't know it was going to just disappear underneath him so rapidly. And then you're in Washington, and so you've got a period of, 18 months, two years, where something more solid could have been put in place so that perhaps we wouldn't be where we are today. It's interesting that you say that about the CIA, because when I got to Washington at the very end of 88, I was invited to join a, a rather discreet committee that had been set up at uh, the Brookings Institution, where several of us met once a week for about three hours to review the latest situation and so on. And there were guys from State Department, from CIA there, uh, guys from the NSA as well. And it was all open stuff, but I, mean, I knew I was, I was sort of picking up on all sorts of, of things that the, the CIA people and the NSA people were much more convinced that Gorbachev was really doing something dramatic and that we were going to be faced with this challenge at the end of the Cold War than were the guys in the State Department. And it was clear also that Bent Scrowcroft, who was the new incoming President Bush's national security advisor, were, remained somewhat skeptical for quite some time. And Scowcroft really took 
a very a very co- a cold war position that he said look our responsibility is not to the people of the soviet union our responsibility is to our european allies and one of our key allies is germany and this has got to be time when eventually the division of germany is going to have to change which was what led to bush's famous call on his visit to germany in that in his first summer of a Europe, a Germany whole and free in a Europe whole and free. And it wasn't until Clinton came in that we really, that we began to see serious attempts by the West to build the kind of transitional structures that would allow Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union to recast their relationships with NATO. And NATO set up something called the Partnership for Peace. And uh, I was with Yeltsin at uh, the first summit in uh, Vancouver in Canada. And Yeltsin told me, we are ready to sign up. We want to be the first country that signs up for partnership for peace, which led to Soviet Red Army soldiers in uniform actually having offices in the NATO headquarters in Brussels. And people were doing joint exercises on civil emergencies and disasters and so on. When Margaret Thatcher was defenestrated by her own party, Mm -hmm. She had, it was clear that she had something of, an, of a breakdown. She, I think so, yeah. She never really recovered. How did Gorbachev handle those first years when all power had suddenly gone away from him? Not well. In 1991, in a sense, Gorby's last big international appearance, and to a degree Margaret's as well, um, was the G7 summit in London. And Gorby was the guest of honour in a way. So it was called the G7 and a half because of his presence there. And I'd, I'd before it, I'd written um, an op-ed piece for the New York Times saying that what we needed was a Marshall Plan to help Russia get through this next phase, just as we'd done for the Germans, the Japanese and so on after World War II. And that was pretty much what Gorbachev was asking for at that G7 meeting. And Bush at the time was worried about his own recession. And uh, Gorbachev had even been quiet. We're talking about 1991-92, just after the Gulf War. Gorbachev had gone along with the Gulf War. He hadn't particularly complained about it. I think the Americans were slow to adapt to anything much beyond Freedom of Eastern Europe and the um, Freedom of Eastern Europe and the unification of Germany. Remember that when Bush went to Ukraine and tried to damp down what he had been told was rising Ukraine nationalist nationalist sentiment, and William Sapphire commented on the New York Times, this should be called the Chicken Kiev speech, because this was the speech at which at which Bush chickened out. And I, I think in some ways that those Bush years were a bit of a lost opportunity for the West. The other factor we have to bear in mind, because it played on everybody's mind, was Tiananmen Square in China in 89. And the fact that the hardliners could come back with tanks and in a rush. So Yeltsin's stance in the, in the White House, defying the tanks to face down the coup, turned this alcoholic uh, figure into a kind of a hero. And yet he presided over the most appalling 
plundering and looting and mismanagement of the Soviet-Russian economic transition, for which we are paying the price still to this day. Do you think one of the things I, I think surprised a lot of people was the resurgent nationalism that immediately followed the collapse of the Soviet Union. And most bloodily, that happened in former Yugoslavia, where almost immediately there were seven countries. Some of them became nations without bloodshed, but famously, most of them became nations with horrific, horrific bloodshed. And the Bush administration stayed out of it. Clinton stayed out of it until it was just not possible to stay out of it because it was embarrassing to see UN troops tied to telegraph poles while men were marched into the woods to be slaughtered like it was 1944 all yeah. over again. Was Gorbachev or any of the people around him aware of this revanchist kind of 19th century nationalism, chewing at the bit, waiting to get out in the former Soviet bloc, in the Warsaw Pact nations? Well, I mean, I always thought of Yugoslavia's collapse as the, as the war of the Soviet succession. I mean, it, it really was about what's going to happen to the old Soviet empire now. And it wasn't just there that you had that sense of nationalism. There were independence movements also that were quite strong in Kazakhstan, in Tajikistan, and these. And of course, there had been the famous withdrawal from Afghanistan for by, by Gorbachev himself. So the, and the other striking feature of it was how quickly nationalism returned to countries like Poland and Hungary even though they'd been embraced into the European family, the European Union, European structures, and of course, into NATO. So, and Gorbachev had actually warned about this in a speech that he, it wasn't too much a speech, it was offhand remarks he gave in a TV comment in, uh, in Riga, in the, uh, this was in, must have been in early 91 after the troubles there, when he said, have we learned nothing about the dangers of thinking only about our own nations, our own small little groupings. How at least did not the Cold War give us a sense of our responsibility as human beings on an international level? So yeah, he was constantly, I think, aware of that. But, and I think he knew his Soviet Union better than, better than most people did. After all, I mean, he, he spent much of his early life way outside of Moscow. Uh, his, you know, when he left Moscow University for the next 20 years, he was out there in the sticks. Um, but it, again, you have to, one thing you have to remember about Gorbachev is that he was reluctant to give up upon what he thought of as the Soviet dream. I think in some ways, one of the most formative moments in his life was when he was one of the delegates to the party conference in, 19, in 1961. And this was the first one to be held in the newly built conference hall in the middle of the Kremlin, an absolute you know, a modernist palace of glass and steel. And it was the moment when Khrushchev was able to announce to the party, but also to the world, if you want to know what the Soviet Union means, ladies and gentlemen, look up into the skies above. 
because the first human being, a Soviet man, is now circling the Earth in space. And it was the moment in April of 61 when Yuri Gagarin seemed to say to the world, my God, the Soviet Union is by far the most advanced in this in this uh, space ventures. They've been the first with Sputnik. They were the first with a man in space. And the Americans took a long time to catch up. So Gorbachev, had, he'd always had this sense of the Soviet Union can do great things. But equally, the Soviet Union is a transnational state. And maybe we've got to get beyond this nationalism bit. In, in the long, long, long 30 years of being out of power, did you have any further contact with Gorbachev? Or yes. here's, yes, tell me about that. Well, there's a couple of them. One was at um, um, a conference in California. And when he was really on the, I won't call it the rubber chicken circuit, he was, uh, he was speaking for money. And another one was in Oklahoma. And uh, each time he made the same speech about, you know, I have no regrets. I am glad the Cold War is over. I hope Russia can get its act together. I hope we can all march forward into broad, sun, sunlit uplands, hand in hand, humanity together. He, and he did it with assurance. I think he probably believed most of it, but he also, he knew he was no longer, he no longer had anything at all to do with it. And he, he'd applied himself to a certain number of good works, but he took his retirement, I think, with dignity. I'm not so sure that Reiser did. I think Reiser, well, I'm told by people who knew her well, that she had, she never got over the kind of breakdown that she went through when they were imprisoned, in effect, in the Crimea, when the when that coup took place. Yeah, I mean, Gorbachev, he'd, he'd been at the dizzying heights, and then he fulfilled that old remark of Enoch Powell, that, all political careers end in disappointment and probably disgrace. Well, let me just ask you one last question, Martin, because you, yeah. you, you do know Russia, even if your life has you know, gone on to have other acts and you do other things yeah. now. When you heard of his death and you look at Russia today, do you ever think that really the Soviet Union was just an expression of Russian nationalism rather than some... Marxist, Leninist, theoretical reshaping of man. Yes, I do sometimes think that there is a school of, of history, of historians in the West, which claims that Russia is deeply unchanged and is and always has been most influenced by the years of the Mongol occupation and that the the Russians have thus got a natural sense of suspicion of the outside world, um, a fear, a, a sense that we need a strong state to protect us, that you can never trust the foreigners, and so on. And that that is true of Tsarist Russia, of communist Russia, and is increasingly true, I think, of Putin's Russia. What is interesting to me now is what is the likely impact of what seems to be a pretty grim outlook for Putin's disastrous venture in, in Ukraine. Maybe this time, when whatever comes after Putin, we'll realize, we'll have the sense, we in the West will have the sense to realize that, look, the Marshall Plan is still the best way 
to end a war and to secure the future for everybody. I bet Gorbachev would agree with that. I think he would. Martin Walker, thank you very much. Michael, thank you. Great to be uh, on air with you. And that's all for this FRDH podcast. My thanks again to Martin Walker for taking the time to talk to me. And please visit the website www.goldfarbpod.com and make a donation to help me keep the podcast going. Thanks.